Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. If you scroll down to the bottom of the podcast section of my website, kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers, you will see the diagram for the 360 degree solution to pandemic control. This solution illustrates the risk reduction measures that we need to put in place working collectively to manage this pandemic, future pandemics, and to live with the coronavirus safely. Today we are looking at wastewater surveillance and how the analysis of our bodily waste correlates to the number of people infected with the coronavirus in our communities without the need for individual testing and can also be a predictor of outbreaks 2 to 14 days in advance of the outbreak actually happening. Hello and welcome to COVID-19 The Answers, episode 15, the wastewater surveillance of SARS-CoV-2 and our final episode of the season. I'd like to introduce you all to three scientists who are currently working and researching in, in this area. Professor Robert Toler, PhD, is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Ottawa in Ontario, Canada. Professor Della Toler received his PhD from the Department of Chemical Engineering at McGill University. His research on environmental engineering focused on biological wastewater treatment and technologies to protect natural waters. His research group at the University of Ottawa particularly works on wastewater surveillance of COVID-19 and is interested in developing and advancing current analytical methods for the detection and quantification of community disease in wastewaters. Dr. Tyson Graber, PhD, is a cell biologist who completed his PhD at the University of Ottawa. His PhD thesis in biochemistry focused on the regulation of mRNA translation in cancer and was nominated for a university award. His expertise in RNA molecules led to him joining the research team at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, or CHEO, where they are currently conducting research on wastewater epidemiology of the COVID-19 pandemic. And last but not least, we have Professor Alex McKenzie, MD, PhD. He is a paediatrician who completed his PhD in medical biophysics at the University of Toronto. From 2000 to 2010, he served as the CEO and director of the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute, as well as vice president of research for CHEO. Professor McKenzie is currently working with Professor Delatola and Dr. Graber on the research of wastewater surveillance of COVID-19. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So I've been trying to work out how a civil engineer, a cell biologist, and a pediatric physician came together to be part of a research project. Walk into a bar. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So, yeah, can you please enlighten me? Well, I, I, very quickly, and then I'll put myself on mute. Uh, and for me, thanks very much for having us. I, I was, uh, I tried to do it in once about 10 years ago with uh, influenza and wastewater, had this thought, but it didn't work out. And then my son, Duncan, who works in Dalhousie on his PhD, called me early in March of 2020 when the lab had been shut down, said he'd seen a seminar and said, Dad, you should look in wastewater for um, COVID, that would be a good way of looking at things. And I always listen to what my son says. And so I went around talking to people who 
for a week or so. And people kept saying, you know, there's this guy, Rob Delatello, you should talk to. Because I was heading down to the, to the wastewater plant with an empty mayonnaise jar, as we like to say. But then Rob heard and he called me. And, and then over to you, Rob. Yeah, that, that, that's where I met Alex. It, it, it was actually really great that I met Alex and, and it really took off from there. And I, and I, you know, on my side, I, I kind of had a very similar experience to Alex where my, my partner, my partner, my wife told me, you know, you should, you should look at this. And I said, it's not fecally shed. It's not going to happen. And as any good partner, I, I automatically dismissed it. And of course she was totally right. And then um, I, you know, you saw in the news, I, I heard the Netherlands were doing it. I called up some colleagues. They, they pointed me to Alex and, and before you knew it, um, Alex had us linked up with Tyson and, and it was really Tyson helped us a great deal and to get it to work. The best thing that happened that I had to play was, introduce Tyson. And then I just make the jokes from then on. I just want to point out that Rob's partner, a lovely woman named Mel, has a has an education in art history from Queens. And she used that expertise to come up with that suggestion for Tyson. Wow, for, uh, for yeah, Bob. yeah, no. Yeah, I, was, I was bored sitting at home watching Netflix and uh, the lab was kind of closed down. So I was trying to get back into the lab and this was a pretty good opportunity to do so. And uh, it blossomed from there. Well, we're all glad that you got together in that quite unusual way. So in the fall of 2020, as they've just um, informed you, Professor Robert Delatola, Dr. Tyson Graber and Professor Alex McKenzie led a multidisciplinary research team with the University of Ottawa, the Research Institute of the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario and the Ontario Ministry of Environment, Conservation and Parks to formulate a $65 million province-wide initiative that facilitated the wastewater surveillance of over 75% of the population of Ontario, comprising of more than 11 million people. The team was one of the first in North America to publish daily levels of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 in wastewater, on a publicly accessible website. Congratulations to the three of you for winning an award from the Innovation Fund Provincial Oversight Committee in Canada for COVID-19 innovation. So well done on that. We were hoping there'd be a red carpet, but uh, apparently not. (laughs) You're a scientist. You can't expect decent things like that. So um, every time we flush the chain of our toilets or run water down the sink, sewers collect this wastewater from homes, hospitals, businesses and many different industries, delivering it to wastewater treatment plants. These plants then clean and purify the wastewater so it can be discharged safely back into our streams, lakes, seas or reused as drinking water. Robert, can you please briefly describe the various stages of how a wastewater treatment plant works? Yeah, thanks. Uh, So that was really well described. That's exactly what happens. So once it all leaves our homes or it leaves our residential or or our commercial buildings or industry, it ends up into infrastructure in the city. And there's basically large pipes and these pipes connect and there's this whole underground world we don't see. And then eventually, in the case of Ottawa, it leads to one central plant. In other cities, it could lead to multiple different plants, different. And these plants is where the water gets processed or treated before it's released back. Um, 
there's a lot of steps to that. And there's, but basically it ends up being a physical treatment where you remove all the gunk and the solids. There's a biological aspect so that that's cost efficient. Um, and there could be chemical aspects as well. Um, but overall, the sum of all of that work, and you can have multi-units, and it's kind of like we call it a treatment train, one after another, treating the, 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 the wastewater. At the end of the day, in Canada, we regulate four deleterious substances. That's it. So if you think of everything that goes down your sink, everything in our city, we regulate four substances. So um, we do a lot of work to remove those four substances uh, from, from our wastewater. Yeah. So Tyson, could you please tell us which stage of the treatment process that wastewater is collected for analysis of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and why? Right. So, so when we first started doing this, um, we didn't really know where we might find the most signal or any signal at all. And so one of the first questions to answer was where in that, you know, that treatment train that, that Rob was discussing, um, where we would be able to detect signal, number one, and and if so, how much or or where in that treatment train would we see the most signal? And uh, before the treatment actually um, might be the most obvious place, so that's raw wastewater, so exactly what's coming in through the pipes from um, all of uh, what we discard. Uh, bodily functions and otherwise and um uh, we looked there first and and then we followed throughout the plant um using our our qpcr method so something that detects nucleic acid and specifically nucleic acid for um genetic fragments of the virus so we're not actually looking at SARS-CoV-2 virus itself we're looking at genetic fragments of it and uh, we, we looked in various stages we looked in the raw wastewater we could see it there in another location um, which as Rob mentioned is a physical process throughout the plant or most of the plant and very much at the beginning of the plant it's a physical process where you screen out large particles uh, we looked there and we, we also looked in um uh, the, the primary clarifier, and that's essentially, a, again, a physical process where uh, most wastewater is water. Uh, so 99% and percent and plus water and the rest is solid material. And the primary clarifier is really just a, a large vat or beaker. Um, that wastewater goes in and then the, the, the solids, solid material settles out. And um, flocculent materials, because it's less dense, goes to the top. And kind of liken it to um you're, you're making gravy for thanksgiving right uh, you let the fat float to the top and all the solids settle to the bottom um that solid material is collected and and we found that that material primary sludge is actually the most concentrated um uh the the the, the mother liquor where SARS-CoV-2 uh, RNA uh, resides in highest amounts and so that's our our kind of go-to place uh, for detecting SARS-CoV-2 uh, RNA viral fragments. Um, yeah, you said I'll it leave was it at a that. sludge that settles at the bottom. Right, so that disgusting solid sludge material, um, <laughs> thick, dense material, um, is, is essentially our, our, you know, is the money shot. Great. Uh, Tyson, those are envelope viruses. Uh, sorry, for me, uh, do you guys expect most viruses and stuff to end down in that area as well, or it depends on, on what we look at in the future? Sorry, I'm taking over this podcast. I apologize. <laughs> no, but, but, you need to ask questions. 
I don't know, Rob or, or, or Tyson. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly, uh, so another group has looked at influenza, but but really not in primary sludge. Uh, well, sorry, yes, in primary sludge, solid material, whether or not that's the most concentrated area of the plant for um, viruses like influenza, I don't think we know. Yeah. Um, Rob, maybe you could add to, I'm not sure if people have looked in solids for enteroviruses and compared that to raw waste, wastewater or not. Yeah, I think I think there's been a lot of previous work done on enteroviruses uh, in wastewater, and I think it may have um, led us in, in a little bit early on, maybe in the wrong direction, because it probably didn't partition exactly like the SARS-CoV-2, and that's and I think that's what took the world and, and ourselves a little bit longer. And, and like Tyson said, like we we really looked everywhere. And and found it in that in, in that sludge portion. So it was kind of unique. I don't know how unique compared to the world of viruses out there, but in terms of the viruses we were interested in previously, it, it was a little bit of a unique situation. So we may have to broaden out the search as as one identifies new pathogens to the list. We may have to go looking in different spots. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm wondering, because there has been some work done on polio. Yeah, all of that, that was really early work, actually, in the 30s, um, and, and went on, actually, in Canada, and Toronto, and, 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 and uh, in Ottawa, in fact, uh, in the 60s and the 70s, and, and, and indeed throughout the world. And, and as far as I know, that the, the bulk of those studies were all done in raw wastewaters, um, and not specifically primary sludge. And I don't think there was any, any, every, any, uh, comparisons directly between primary sludge and, and raw wastewaters. Alex, are there any risks to the individuals that collect wastewater for analysis? For example, is SARS-CoV-2 infectious in our sewage? That's a great question for me. I mean, as we all remember, at the beginning, we were swabbing down our groceries and, and worried about surface uh, uh, surface and, and non-sort of uh, respiratory transmission of the actual virus. But it, it turns out with over time, um, it really does look like it's it's your breath and uh, nothing but your breath. Insofar, it's very it's very hard to um, uh, it's very hard to get it off surface swabs. It's hard to get it even off of stool. Never mind wastewater, and uh, and therefore um, it, it's uh, it's really not a risk at all. Well, that's actually comforting, Alex, because um, I read a a couple of papers where there was some concern because um, there's been a lot of research done at um, the University of China in Hong Kong. Right. Um, they developed um, a, a test for SARS-CoV-2 in feces really early on in the pandemic, within six months yes. of us going into the pandemic. And they used it to test children at airports and the elderly from, from memory. And the, and I read a couple of their, uh, I think that group's papers in another group somewhere in China, and they were saying that they detected SARS-CoV-2 in the atmosphere after flushing, particularly after people did, you know, past a stall. I mean, um, so it's comforting to know that if you guys yes. are handling it, your risks are low. Right. Uh, uh, very low. And the aerosolization from stool and wastewater, when you can look at a big fat droplet from your na nasal or oropharynx, which can contain dozens, if not hundreds of, uh, of viral particles, it, it really pales in comparison. So, so I understand we're worried about a lot of things, but I think just being conscious of, of respiratory exposure and focusing on that, even to this day in hospitals, we gown up and take the gowns off. Uh, uh, meticulously, and there really isn't a strong evidence base for that. If one went around masking tightly, maybe with eye protection, you would really deal with most of it, I think. 
Thank you. Tyson, your Innovation Fund Award was the me- was for the measurement of SARS-CoV-2 protein and RNA in wastewater as a real-time measurement of community viral load. You're basically analysing the faeces or poo that we flush down the loo for SARS-CoV-2. I'm sure there's a song in there somewhere. From my understanding, with reference to your research paper, which is currently a preprint entitled SARS-CoV-2 Protein in Wastewater Mirrors COVID-19 Prevalence, faeces contain much less virus than that found in our nasal passages and lung. So you have developed a more accurate way of detecting the coronavirus from viral proteins residing in wastewater than the commonly used RT-PCR testing process that is used for most wastewater surveillance. Can you please help us to understand how this shows us how much COVID-19 is residing in the community? Right, so so lots in that question um, to, to kind of dissect and um it really, this whole project, you know, detecting and also following trends over time is really dependent on, on a test or an assay that is, is highly specific and highly sensitive. Um, so being able to, to make sure that you are detecting what you think you are detecting and also being able to uh, detect vanishingly small amounts of that target uh, reliably over time. And um, uh, QRT-PCR is, 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 is a excellent um, technique that does both. So it gives you both high sensitivity and high uh, specificity. And uh, we knew that going into this, um, but there was another angle to this that Dr. McKenzie um, r- really uh, was a proponent of and, and still a proponent of, and, and that is uh, looking at protein. So why would you look at protein rather than RNA? Um, well, w- the main rationale is that if you think about it, um, SARS-CoV-2 virus is, uh, in fact, nucleic acid material enveloped in a bunch of protein. And so um, it's really what we're looking at by QRT-PCR, the nucleic acid, the RNA, a small fragment of that RNA, there's only one molecule of that RNA per virion or per virus particle. Um, Not to get into too much detail, but uh, as soon as a cell is infected, that nucleic acid gets copied over and over and over again. So there, there are more copies of that, but um, let's say for, for sake of argument that there's a, just a single copy of RNA. Um, now the protein, there, there are multiple copies of proteins on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so uh, for instance, the S protein that, that uh, most of your listeners are probably familiar with by now, um, there's, uh, couple of orders of magnitude more copies of protein of SARS-S protein on that virus versus the nucleic acid. And so right away, you have an in- inherent increased sensitivity with protein, assuming you can detect it. Um, and so um, we've tried to, in partnership with a, with, a, with a company and together with Alex McKenzie and, and my lab, we've tried to develop, we've tried to develop a protein-based assay to look at SARS-CoV-2 um, protein in wastewater. And I will say that this is very much research in progress so that this is not being applied right now in service as, as, as RNA detection is, but we think it's, it's, um, viable as a, as a, as a technology to use. And we're hopeful that, um, it's going to be as accurate or as reliable as RNA, but perhaps better sensitivity, um, than RNA. That means we can track um, SARS-CoV-2 and, and as a proxy for COVID-19 disease in a community um, uh, more reliably when cases are very low. Um, and and there's, it also opens the door to other um, 
interesting things like following correlates of immunity. So in other words, antibodies in wastewater. And so using that same technology to do that. And so uh, for those reasons, um, we're, we're heavily invested in looking at protein and, and antibodies in wastewater. And we, we think this is going to hopefully open the door to more applications for um, COVID-19, or sorry, for, for COVID-19, but other pathogens and, and wastewater-based epidemiology. I think it's safe to say, if I may, that we are both scientifically and emotionally invested at this stage. At this approach. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it sounds um, a very sensible approach. I, I actually thought that it was in use at the moment, so thanks, thanks for enlightening me of that. But um, does that mean- I, I will say, I will say, in the preprint, um, we, we did look over a period, the first uh, or the tail end of the first wave of the pandemic, and uh, we we could profile S and M and N proteins on SARS-CoV-2, and that correlated very well with our with the RNA profile. And so there, there's a lot of preliminary data that suggests that it will work. It's just that um, it's not at a stage now where we could implement it on a wide scale basis. So could that be you? Since you you'll be able to you would be able to theoretically do antibody detection in wastewater. Will you be able to tell how well the population is immunized? Yes or how well they've responded to a vaccine from analyzing their wastewater. Exactly, that's the hope. And, and using this same, um, so this protein-based assay is, is um, as sensitive or more sensitive than a QRT-PCR-based method. And it can, in theory, and, and we're working mm-hmm. on that, detect antibodies. And we, we know that um, uh, uh, there are SARS-CoV-2 uh, immunoglobulins, SARS-CoV-2 specific immunoglobulins in urine, in feces, in fact, and so um, and it's beautiful. And so um, it's it's conceivable and it's hopeful that we can look at various different classes of immunoglobulins, not just of COVID-19 or, or SARS-CoV-2, but for other pathogens as well. And and that can be a correlative of what's happening in terms of. Uh, community protection or, or the ability of the community to protect itself, whether it's through vaccine-mediated immunity or, or, or natural infection. It allows us to use the phrase community immunity, which I love saying. That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's fantastic. So um, if you perfect this, um, and we will keep eyes on you, um, then you'll be, you may well be able to tell um, certain communities when they need to get a booster, for example, possibly, rather than um, us just being blindly bo- boosted and not quite knowing whether we actually need it, on top of lots of other information, I'm sure. Absolutely, that's the hope. Um, right now, it's really hard to do that uh, clinically, um, requiring, you know, using people who are donating blood essentially as, as proxy markers of, of seroprevalence in, in community. And that, that's laborious. It takes a lot of time and it's point prevalence it's only one time. Um, so this would really be kind of a, almost a near real time method to follow over time what's happening with the community and the community, which um, is totally novel, I think. Uh, so it's quite exciting. And um, I, I hope uh, and I not just hope, I, I, I believe that it will it will work. Um, so we're working on that right now. Yeah, as somebody pointed out to me recently, um, really with wastewater surveillance, you're capturing members of the community that don't necessarily have um, usual interaction with um, health authorities or medical personnel. You know, it's a blanket catchment of, of, of everybody. So that's a really, really powerful resource. Uh, more equitable um, surveillance is certainly a key um, feature of this kind of platform. 
Um, and there's uh, several other advantages um, that uh, uh, you know this platform provides, which traditional clinical surveillance does not. And hopefully, you know, um, the two can come together in a complementary form um, to provide really, I'd say, high resolution or higher resolution um, surveillance of, of disease that that we've been used to in the past. So Robert, um, the wastewater collected has been diluted considerably. Only 50% of infected people excrete SARS-CoV-2 into their poop and different people shed different amounts of virus. With all of these factors and given that SARS-CoV-2 RNA concentrations in wastewater are not direct COVID-19 numbers, how do you accurately ascertain the number of people infected in a given area by analysing the wastewater in that area? For example, I saw a news report recently that said that you were able to ascertain that Ontario had entered a sixth wave because around 30 to 40,000 people a day were being infected. How did you calculate that? Hardest question of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it's, it, it's a great question. It has to be asked. So, um, you know, early days, um, people started to do this. Like we talked about March, 2020, April, 2020, we were getting our first data points. Uh, and, um, and, you know, there are companies and, and labs that came out and particularly one us company that uh, provided a service to track SARS-CoV-2 and wastewater and tell you how many people were infected in your community. So we, th- this has been, um, something and, and it's ongoing now and, and, and it exists. Um, it's, you know, that that number that you're referring to comes out of the science advisory table in Ontario. Um, so Peter Uni and his group have taken the 107 wastewater treatment plants. There's 175 sites in Ontario. There's 107 wastewater treatment plants. The other sites are what you, you alluded to, like smaller resolutions, buildings, neighborhoods. Um, and and he, he takes that information and really... Um, you know, through through a number of kind of calculations, derives a, uh, a, a number equivalent, a number of people in the community, and that that equivalency is really based upon the fact that there are some sites like Ottawa, for example, Hamilton, um, that's been doing this for about two years. So you have this relation that already exists. That like the wastewater signal gives you a value. At that same time, you could look and see a corresponding number of clinical cases over time, and we've seen. We, we just actually put out a paper um, looking at this and how that relationship between clinical cases and wastewater signal actually changes when your variant of concern changes. When the dominant variant in your community changes, the fecal shedding seems to be modified um, or the, the, the people who are asymptomatic, the number of asymptomatics may be modified. I think that the landscape essentially changes and that relationship changes. Right now we have a relationship between clinical cases and Omicron, which BA1 really, because that's when we were testing here. Um, and, and that relationship is using to extrapolate and say, okay, if our wastewater is this amount, then we can say it's approximately this number of cases. So that's how that number was derived. Um, it's something that I think is used more so as a piece of information because people are used to clinical cases. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of precision there, but I think it's very useful as a communication tool so that people in this day and age without the clinical testing anymore, there's that void. It sort of replaces that void, um, but but maybe not a whole lot of precision on those numbers. So from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, 
people have kind of comprised a table. So they know that, say, for example, the wastewater number was was one. That correlates to 10,000 a day because when 10,000 a day was was a bit more of an accurate number when we were testing far more often. That was the correlation. And so they've built a whole table of these correlations and you draw on that each time you get a signal from the wastewater. Is, is, is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's basically building off of that table, that historic data, and then taking the number of wastewater because clinical cases doesn't exist as it used to. It's a whole, it's a modified, there's a whole new eligibility, and then doing exactly what you said and saying, well, if it was this in the past, and what they do is they look specifically during Omicron because we're in, we still have you know different sublineages of Omicron, and then they basically extrapolate and say, well, this would be equivalent to. X amount and thirty to forty thousand was when we were peaking. Yeah, it, it was quite uh, remarkable, and our wastewater was the highest we've ever seen. So um, it, it makes a lot of sense that those numbers would be in that ballpark. Thank you. What are the many variables that we perhaps don't we talk about a bit, but we don't maybe track as much as we should? For me, is, is the idea that we kind of assume all the variants are shedding the same level of a virus into the intestine. And we know with this transition to Omicron, there was a dramatic shift in the nasopharynx to the actual lung. And it, it may well emerge that there's a change in the in the per capita or per bum, I guess, shedding uh, for the new variants. And, and that can throw our numbers off a bit. So, so that's something that, that I guess, Rob, we, we need to, and it's up to me. I'm the one that, I, I'm dial a stool. They say, uh, Mackenzie, go get stool. And I go running around the, the wards and, and and say, hi, I'm Dr. Mackenzie. Can I have your children's stool? Uh, and the parents go, what? But anyway, it's up to me to get you guys the stool, but we should be looking carefully at that. Sorry, that was just a okay. side note. Also have to remember that we're not just talking about stool here. We're also talking about um, other secretions that might be in the wastewater system. And, and we don't know what the relative contributions yep. are between those. Um, so still the, lots of many open questions here. Like, like urine being the significant other one, I guess. Urine, sputum, brushing your teeth, mm -hmm. uh, things like this. But I will tell you something, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of looking at this a little bit. We, we're at a number of locations. So we're looking at wastewater citywide. We're also looking at um, little communities and neighborhoods in that city. And then within the same city, we're also actually at different facilities. And one of the facilities are university residences. And we have a few cases, situations where over the years, we've had one clinical case out of X number of people living in a building and then we've caught the signal and we've had that in a couple of different buildings yeah and if you would have asked me before or any of us I, well myself i would have said yeah. it's not going to be a very close number it'll probably yeah. be you know orders of magnitude different from one building to another there's you know so much variation they were it really wasn't you know we're seeing even when we look when we caught one case in at building x one case in building Y, and we did that ratio. Well, one person shedding at this yeah. time, this is the signal. We're like, wow, it's very similar. And then right. when we go to the neighborhood level, we were able to get number of cases on a specific day, look at the wastewater on that day, and do that same kind of back calculation. Yeah. Still not that different. So I'm kind of Surprise you know, I, I say there's a, yeah, precision, there's a precision issue, but you know what? It's it's not as far off or undoable as we may think it is. Yeah. Mm, interesting. We live in hope. <laughs> 
Alex, a high concentration of SARS-CoV-2 detection in wastewater can predict an upcoming COVID-19 outbreak by 2 to 14 days in that given yeah. area. Can you please explain to the audience how this is so? Uh, 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 yeah, I mean, I just want to kick it out quickly to Rob and Tyson. Is 2 to 14 still what you guys are seeing off uh, when you look at the latest uh, Omicron data as far as anticipating? is Have those numbers changed, Rob? Oh, they've changed. Yeah. So two to 14, I'd say is a good estimate across the pandemic. But interestingly, yep. uh, for Omicron, it's yep. it's decreased. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's just it's just on a bit fast forward, Omicron, uh, that everything happens. Uh, uh, the uh, infectious period, uh, uh, the time for symptoms and then the peak and it being over, although there's still is long sort of COVID with Omicron, but everything's a bit faster. So uh, so it's not the two to eight, I think maybe closer to five to six days. And it's just simply uh, the way the pathophysiology, it just starts shedding uh, uh, before somebody these days goes and gets a test or certainly go heads for the hospital. Uh, and when you think about it, the hospital is you're into it for a while. Things have been happening and it can be even in Omicron 10 days or so. Maybe in the old days, it was more like two weeks with the uh, the less uh, uh, sort of fast strains. So it just it just goes more quickly into the intestine. A question that we have, we're like politicians who ask us a question, we say, that's a very good question, but here's another question. But uh, a question that we, we have is, how does it get into the intestine? Because it does not uh, spread through the blood. It doesn't spread through the blood. So exactly how, and, and it's rare that that's the main site. So it, it looks like it has to, get from the nasal pharynx, oropharynx, go through the pH too, as you know, being an internal medicine doctor, for me, you know, the pH of the gastric fluid is around two in the stomach. Somehow it gets through there and the infectious particles carry down in the intestine. And work that, that actually Tyson has been doing, look at these so-called exosomes or extracellular vesicles. It looks like that's where you're finding the most of the protein. So it may well be that that is the package uh, that gets uh, that down from the upper respiratory tract into the intestine. But that's a whole area that we need to study and figure out. Total tangent, I apologize. But yep. So for the audience who are not quite so scientific and medical as us, um, what that means is because of the way the virus works in our body, we don't start to develop symptoms until much later on. Yeah, absolutely right. shedding early. Yeah, absolutely. So that's how you're able to predict, say, to detect it early. Thank you. In advance. Thank you for asking the question that you answering the question that you asked me. You did, you did a very good job, but that's exactly right. Great. Um, and with regards to how it gets in the gut, wouldn't it be through the endothelium? Wouldn't it actually be, you know, isn't there an affinity for this virus in the endothelium, which is what our blood vessels are made of? It doesn't isn't there an seem inflammatory to... process that it kicks off in there. It doesn't seem to be in the blood. It does not seem to be a blood-borne virus. No, but not in the blood, but in the actual endothelium. So of the of the of the arteries and the veins, what the arteries and, and veins are made of, doesn't it? But but then you'd have to ask for contiguous spread from endothelial cell to endothelial cell, and that's a hell of a journey without it being in the blood. Uh, but but I, I do I also I I think I'm way beyond my expertise here. But we don't clinically see the hallmarks of a profound vasculitis that one would anticipate if you were talking about endothelial cell infection tracking down from the oropharynx down to the intestine. So I think possibly, but somewhat unlikely, I I, I still feel through the GI tract uh, uh, from the mouth down 
is probably just physical transport, but uh, mm. we shall see. We'll find out in a year or two, and then one of whoever's right can call the other one with me and see whether endothelium versus GI tract. Okay, Tyson, I've read that your team has worked out a way of specifically identifying if certain businesses or establishments, such as a factory or long-term care home, is having an outbreak by analysing the treatment plant's wastewater, which I presume is coming from a variety of establishments. Can you please explain to the audience how your analysis can be so specific? I think Rob's already touched on this, but Tyson, if you could answer that. Yeah, yeah, Rob touched on it a little bit, uh, talking about university campus uh, specifically here in Ottawa and how um, that's being used or, or as, as kind of a model system to to um, try to correlate better um, the amount of signal from uh, the wastewater, SARS-CoV-2 specific signal from the wastewater versus the number of cases identified. Um, and and um, that's not easy um, by, by any means. And, and and this has been kind of uh, replicated at multiple occasions around the world. Um, it, it really started in the, a lot in the U.S. On, on, on university and college campuses there where they have actually excellent model systems to, to study this in because um, it's a very controlled environment. Um, um, at, at the time early in the pandemic, uh, most of the, the, the on-campus population um, was undergoing mandatory testing if not daily, then you know semi-weekly or weekly, and um, and then wastewater analysis. And so it's it's really um, on the wastewater treatment plant, except um, it's really raw raw wastewater that is coming out of uh, a specific building on campus or um, part of the sewer network on campus, and they're really just sampled. And so there's different methods of sampling that people employ. Uh, there's there's grab sampling where you just take a sample at a, at a point sample at a, at a specific time point um, on, a, on a specific day and or you can do um, uh, this auto sampling which collects over a period of time collects fluid over the period of time collects wastewater over a period of time and then you pool or composite those time period time points um, or there's something called passive sampling and there's a, a variety of methods there uh, these are referred to as more swaps um, and, and these passive samplers are just membranous material, um, gauze, for example, um, that are simply put down into the, in the manhole directly into the wastewater flow. And, that, and then the material collects on there over a period of time. And then you process that using the exact same um, PCR technology um, that you would from a sample collected at a wastewater treatment plant or a central node. Um, and, and so as you can imagine um, if you do that, you, have, you can have many different sampling points in that network, and therefore you can get a, a much higher resolution picture of what's going on. Um, is there a hotspot in building A versus building Z, or is building Z downstream of building A, and therefore you should see much more signal because um, you're now um, getting integrated signal from multiple sites. Um, and so that that's kind of the that's kind of what we're doing on a very small scale here in Ottawa, but there's other groups around the world who have taken this uh, much further um, and have integrated this into geographical system mapping, et cetera, and, and have algorithms where they can um, predict uh, where um, uh, uh, cases might increase uh, based on the signal over the past week or so. And it's, it's all that to say is, is if, you know, these campus level or building level um, monitoring stations are are 
excellent model systems to be able to ask the question of um, exactly how much is being shed. And I guess the signal to noise ratio um, that allows you to be able to say this area or this building has uh, a COVID-19 case versus nothing. Finding that signal to noise um, ratio is, is much easier to do in these smaller systems than it is um, across larger networks, such as a wastewater treatment plant in a large city. Well, th- yeah, that's th- that really clarifies because I was really puzzled by that. So actually, really, you just need a huge team of people to go out and collect the samples, virtually the source, before it enters the mass of, 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 of the whole treatment plant is, is what you're saying, really. And I guess universities have done that and you're able to extrapolate that information and learn from it. Am I correct there? Yeah, it's, it's a large, I don't know if Rob agrees, but it's a large logistical problem um getting enough people power and and uh, just just figuring out the complexities of the network uh, the underground network and and hopefully um you know we'll understand that better in the future maybe employ uh, machine learning things like this uh, better sampling techniques maybe more automated sampling techniques um, where you don't have to rely so much on people essentially and then figure out that the, the the minimum number of nodes needed in a network to generate the same amount of information um, which is uh, uh, something that I'm sure people are working on but but not me <laughs> one of the things that, that that has been a delight coming from the clinical side is, how we don't need to do ethics approval, how we don't need, this is not the invasion of anybody's privacy and we can just go ahead and do it, right? Uh, And as you know from me, how tricky things can be Mm. on the clinical side. But Tyson, as we get better and more granular and sophisticated at this, will the ugly uh, uh, sort of uh, prospect of of, uh, loss of anonymity and and ethics raise its head, do you think? Or is that, am I just overthinking? Absolutely, ethics is a big uh, concern as you go down to, higher resolution pockets of, of source. Um, maybe Rob could speak to that because yeah. uh, he's played with that. Engin- I don't know if engineers have any ethics. I mean, I'm not clear, but po- possibly. Pretty sure <laughs> not. some sort of professional school or something. I think where we had to, the one example in Canada I know of where the REB was required was in our work with correctional facilities. And the reason, the only reason why it was required, even testing the wastewater at the correctional facilities, um, it wasn't, it was required because there was an ask to actually calibrate the waste, do exactly what, what, you're, what you're intimating here, to calibrate the wastewater data to the number of residents in those facilities who were symptomatic. And, and once you went to that level of granulation, then it was, oh, okay, now you need your REB. But even when you're at that facility or, or at that building, um, we have we have auto samplers right inside buildings. Every building has its own clean out little access point. It's like a little angled kind of pipe. We have them going right in that angled pipe right inside the buildings. Um, no no uh, ethics review was required for that. So were they little robots that you had going into the pipes? Yeah. We do, yeah. Some sometimes they're little, the little robots like doing the automation, like pulling every fifteen minutes for twenty four hours, pulling it all together. We call that a composite. Um, we also have little, like like Tyson alluded to, passive samplers. They look like little fishing lines that just dangle in there and they absorb 
over time the and then we just pull them out we do we do um the passive samplers when we're working with first nation communities remote communities um northern communities that's where we we do a lot of that work yeah uh, okay could, could i just do quick, one more quick uh, do you, uh, i apologize for this for me but is industry not going to come in and take it all over rob and just kick you guys out because this is so obvious and a potential money maker is, is that how it's going to go in the next little while i, I sorry total tangent but maybe I just thought it. Uh, you guys have done so much better. When back a year or two ago, people say, "Oh, Delatel, they'll do it for a while, and then they can't keep it up. They don't have the standards, and 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 there's going to be uh, companies coming in and doing it." But so far, not. Is that going to happen soon? You think, or it's the dream? I think okay. we want to we yes. want to stop doing this yes. uh, because it's a lot yes. of work, and we're not Absolutely. really built for it. But Absolutely. we keep hearing it. Um, yeah, I, I think. I think so, Alex. Um, yep. Fingers crossed it's going to okay. happen. But, you know, there's all sorts of questions of what's a standard method? What should everybody do? How do you... Yep. It gets complicated, yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think ev I don't think people are quite aware, that, which is the whole point of this uh, podcast, uh, of what you're doing. It's There's more awareness now as, as more people have got on board with wastewater surveillance, particularly with testing decreasing. Um, and, and my hope would be that you actually stay involved. I trust a scientist more than I trust, you know, um, someone who's looking to do it just for the money. So yep. we would hope that this it may kill you, funding, but we want you to stay. Um, and you, and you, and you, you work in collaboration with them and get your research yeah. funded. Yep. Um, exactly. That's what my hope would be, but we've got it because we, we're running out sure. of time. So I'm going to unmute on a bit. So I'm really sorry. No, it's fantastic. This is a great conversation. Um, so Alex, given that wastewater surveillance is often used as a public health tool, tool alongside community testing figures, contact tracing and hospitalization levels, and our testing and contact tracing have decreased dramatically in some yes. places by 70%, 80% or more. How can we rely on this form of epidemiology to give an accurate account of the prevalence or amount of COVID-19 in our communities? Well, so so that's you're almost asking the same question another way. I mean, we can count on it by keeping people like Delatello and Graver in, in the actual uh, a business working maybe in close alliance with industry. I, I think that uh, from day to day trending, it's very, very good that basically, and now when uh, when our own Vera Etches or, or maybe uh, BC health officers lead off their news item, they go to wastewater first. And this is after taking a while to convince people uh, uh, that, that it actually works. So I think from day to day Trending, it really is now the accepted uh, uh, metric that people pivot to first. The whole idea of getting actual numbers within the community, I think Rob and Tyson have a, got, done a great job of addressing. And, and I think Rob's point is that he thought it might suck, and it doesn't suck that bad. The, the actual accuracy, as you look at the building, is close. And it's just, I do think that over the next year or two with refinement, we'll be able to start getting harder numbers and, and better estimations. I would say it's always been a pipe dream to get those sort of numbers from me, uh, for sure. But in the end, it, it might be the icing on the cake. And the real value is the day-to-day -day week trending of community prevalence. That's what people really pay the money to see and really has the value, I think. Okay, so Robert, how can you facilitate the analysis of sewage from areas or regions that are not connected to the sewage system, such as septic tanks in remote areas or pit latrines? 
Yeah, another good question. So we're not really great at that right now. Like, I think if you look at um, the the surveillance that's happening around the world, you'll see that it's mainly uh, affluent uh, countries. It's mainly large cities. So there is sort there is a demographic that that's not getting the attention as other demographics are getting right now. Um, we septic tanks are a problem. I haven't heard anybody be able to do it. I think you could do it with a passive sampler if you get it into the flow pipe. But like remote communities where they have truck where they have trucks that go and collect the septic every day we were able to just simply um, analyze what comes out of the truck and take a sample from that um, so there's a lot of ways we could do it there's about like a thousand five hundred lagoons across this country there's a, that's just ponds that just go it's not a great place what we do is we just go in the pipe right before it goes into the pond so there's always creative ways that we're able to do these things um so we're, we're working on it, but but I think bringing this technology to remote or to to certain areas that, that don't have the same infrastructure as the big cities is an important task. And we need to do better at that point of care, point of care assays where you can actually do it right there. Are those coming as well? There, 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 there are, there are on-site like the gene experts. Right, right. Uh, there, there are, yeah, there are technologies. What, it's, especially Northwest Territories has a, has a number of sites where they have this little box, this yeah, gene, right. and and they they do it themselves. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tyson, can you please tell us how surveillance of sewage can be used to detect different variants of the coronavirus and why this is important? Right, so I can easily tell you how we do it. Uh, the, the, why we do it is 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 something that has been changing throughout the pandemic. And at, at first, it was um, the UK variant that came in, and of course, there was this big change. We wanted to know when this was coming because we would have to change how we manage cases, how we do testing, etc. Um, and so it was very important that we know that, and that that kind of um, gave us the incentive to design a new PCR test to, to look specifically for the alpha variant, which was previously referred to as the UK variant. And um, we, we, we kind of used a kind of a classical um, molecular biology technique to do that, to adjust our PCR so that now it was um, specific, not only to SARS-CoV-2 virus, but specific solely to the alpha variant, the alpha uh, variant of, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it wasn't just, yes, it was here. We could actually, we came up with a method to actually estimate the proportion or the fraction of the total wastewater signal that we were generating um, um, to, to get a proportion of, of that signal that was the alpha variant. And so that that was kind of unique and novel at the time. And um, it was was we weren't sure whether we could do this and and the, the big question whether that would accurately reflect that proportion of alpha variant as a function of total um, signal in, in wastewater whether that would accurately reflect what was happening with with cases uh, or in other words the number of alpha variant cases in the community and so we we used clinical um clinical surveillance uh, um, uh genomic surveillance to try to correlate um the number of alpha variant cases in Ottawa with the signal we were getting from the wastewater, and they aligned very nicely. They correlated very well. And so this was kind of neat. <laughs> we could now determine, you know, how much um, of any particular variant was present in wastewater, and that would basically be a, a, corollary, a corollary of what was happening clinically. 
And um, um, and so we continued with this. We went, we did this with Delta, and we did this now with Omicron. And um, we have not just PCR now as a method to detect and to follow variants. We have um, uh, whole genome sequencing. We can actually do that in wastewater, which we couldn't really do with, with many targets before SARS-CoV-2. And um, we can actually come up with uh, what, again, this similar to community immunity, there's also the community genome, um, uh, which is a mixture of all those um, uh, uh, viruses, different variants that people are shedding. And then we come up with a, a, what's called a metagenome or, or kind of a, a layer on top of the existing genome that, that reflects what's happening in the community. And, and that also is um, very close to what we're seeing by qPCR. So using two kind of independent methods in wastewater, we can follow the variation or the genetic diversity of that virus. And so why is that important? Uh, what's actionable, actionable about that? Um, in terms of public health, they, they may not care whether it's a, a, an omega variant versus an alpha variant in terms of case management. Um, but what it does do is, is give them time to say that, oh, this variant is coming here or it's here now to look at emerging variants. So let's say we didn't know a variant, new variant is coming. We can actually now see this in wastewater when a new variant is coming or is already here. And uh, we can see how fast that comes into the community and therefore we can attach um, uh, epidemiological metrics to it. So attack rates, so how fast that is coming into a community all through wastewater. We don't need, don't necessarily need clinical surveillance to do that. And so we can see now that Omicron came in a lot faster. So it came in within a week yeah. through wastewater, whereas with the alpha variant, it took two weeks to come in. Yeah. And now with let's just throwing out examples here that we see in real time through wastewater, um, BA2 took uh, a month and a half to, to become the totality of wastewater signal. So it was much, much slower than um, the original Omicron variant. So all this information we can we can extract from wastewater, which is I, I still find totally amazing. <laughs> and um and, yeah. and we're continuing with that. And and um th there's other reasons why it's important to look at variant variants. And and I, I'd say the number one right now for me at least is to identify when new variants are coming here because um, testing, clinical testing is is getting lower and lower and lower every day. And therefore mm -hmm. that that kind of um, is the uh, warning factor of genomic surveillance, which everybody is going on about, we need genomic surveillance. Well, we can't have genomic surveillance if we don't have those swabs. Mm -hmm. And so wastewater is a way to get around that. We could do genomic right. surveillance through wastewater and get the same similar information. Rob called a meeting with the epidemiologist and I said, do we really need to know about the variants because everyone is like the other one and so why do we care so much? And they all screamed at me and told me to shut up and told me it was very, very important and this is very important data. That, I just wanted to make that point. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no. And Is there anything yeah. else you wanted to talk about um, with regards to variants, Alex? One of the things we haven't mentioned is, is just uh, the, the helpfulness of the epidemiologists, people like Doug Manuel. It's just the three of us talking here, but it's just it, it, uh, the city of Ottawa. What an incredibly collaborative, beautiful thing it has been. I've been in, I'm 67. I've been in this game for, for decades. It was the most beautiful collaboration I've seen, just, just people helping each other. And, and it starts at the top. And I think Rob's personality, I mean, he's a bit of a narcissist, but by and large, he's an okay guy. 
uh, I, I think, <laughs> I sure think has, has really helped. Uh, anyways, yes, that, that's all okay. I wanted to say. Okay. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 can be monitored in wastewater. Alex, can you talk about other germs or pathogens and materials that we excrete in our urine and feces that could be monitored in wastewater and the potential use of this to monitor the health of the nation? Uh, and so norovirus, hepatitis A, influenza, poliovirus, astrovirus, sapovirus, rotavirus, even respiratory syncytial virus, they are all possibilities. Um, and indeed, uh, Elizabeth Mercier with Rob is now getting influenza data, uh, and it looks doable. Uh, I mean, preliminary data, Rob, I, I, but I don't want to uh, sort of give away any secrets, but looks good, is what I understand. It looks yeah. good. Very nice. surprising. We saw it. Uh, it's happening now. Not very, not very common to have influenza outbreaks at this time yeah. of the year, but yeah, yeah, we're seeing it in the wastewater and clinically. So Yeah, right. uh, yeah. And then, and just finally, I, I, we have just sent off an email to Monir Taha, long-suffering uh, deputy medical hop, health officer, who keeps on trying to keep us between the ditches and, and is very patient with us. And we, I, I just sent him an email says, saying monkeypox is in the feces. Should we start looking? And so uh, Monir will get back, knowing Monir within the next six hours or so, and say, no, Alex, stupid idea. Or surprisingly, yeah. not a stupid idea. So just to yep. show you the pace at which we've been working at for the last couple of years, uh, got an email this afternoon from Montreal saying, um, so the wastewater people in Montreal, they want to test for monkeypox there. Um, email is going to Public Health Agency of Canada. Can you do this today? Um, can we get wastewater for this? Can we Wonderful. get the all the, all the um, reagents needed for that? And so um, cool. things work at crazy fast pace in this that's field. Fantastic. That's fantastic. And also, um, there's two things that spring to mind with all that. Um, the first is um, the costs. So I, I would imagine it's far cheaper to analyze um, the wastewater of 100,000 people than to do saliva or, you know, frontal nasal or horrible nasopharyngeal swabs. And, and not everybody would come forward to do that, whereas everybody has to pass their business into the, the, the queen poops. <laughs> so I would think it's more cost effective as well to do what you're doing. Yeah, just, I, I think it is. So like in Ottawa, the example is a million people, 910,000 people connected on the source system going to one pipe to the wastewater treatment plant. We, we test there every day. Uh, so we take one sample, we drive physically. We one person from the lab drives, picks it up, drives it over to the university and we 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 send in that information to the epi team. Um, Five hundred to four thousand clinical tests a day is what we were doing here in the in the city of Ottawa. And if you think about the not only the number of tests in the lab, but if you're going to have to run five hundred to four thousand tests, there's a whole team and all that expenses associated with with actually collecting the sample. Um, so I don't know. I'm my you know when when you run quick numbers, I I come out with a negligible amount. It's almost like it, it's, it, yeah, it's a rounding error. It's it's and also yeah. even though we don't particularly like dealing with our um effluent, um it's actually safer than I would imagine. Oh, it is you know, it's less infectious. Yeah, yeah. less infection because yeah. you know, medical personnel yeah. have to collect and, yeah. and and PPE and all that. So yeah, no, great. The other thing as well I was wondering about because some um communities say in China and um and I think the Netherlands, they are analyzing sort of drug excretion in, in, in the urine and other chemicals and molecules. What do you see 
um, with regards to that contributing to the us being able to assess the health of the nation by being an being able to analyze non-pathogens but but other things that we might excrete yeah long history the, the, one of the things that's been leveraged in canada was there's the canadian wastewater survey i think they were calling it, it was done being done by statistics canada started in 2018 um halifax montreal vancouver i think five or seven uh cities 14 locations in those in those x number of cities um, they leveraged that and the Public Health Agency of Canada actually took over those sites and started to, to measure uh, COVID-2 at those locations. So, yeah, we've been looking at illicit drugs, opioids, um, you know, pharmaceuticals um, for a number of reasons with, within our wastewater. So, yeah, there, there's a history there. And I think the combination of that, of that side of the equation with the pathogens, it really is starting to paint a picture that we have this portal um into into you know into our community health by doing this so right okay so final question so robert the covid poops dashboard is an electronic record of the summary of wastewater surveillance being carried out in various wastewater centers all over the world it's an electronic dashboard maintained by researchers at the university of california merced how do you see wastewater surveillance being used globally to manage future pandemics yeah, so there's, a, I think Tyson alluded to this, and, and just like there's sort of a very collaborative um, community here in Canada, there's also a very collaborative community internationally. Um, so there are multiple different international uh, working groups that have come together that are looking at wastewater data. So whether it's it's looking at the wastewater data for COVID-2 specifically, um, or if there's pandemic preparedness. So Tyson, uh, Alex, myself are, are involved in these international initiatives that, that are happening, bringing groups together, uh, global pandemic preparedness um, across multiple countries. Um, and wastewater has been a, discuss, a point of discussion in that. And I think it's great um, because I think it is a tool. We've seen, you know, if there is a silver lining during this pandemic, it's some of the signs that came out of it. And one of the pieces of the science that came out of it is this way is this crazy idea of looking in wastewater. So um, I'm glad to see it there. Um, yeah, it's it's part of the discussion and hopefully will be not only a discussion internationally, but hopefully will be in the discussion going forward in Canada. So thanks to Professor Robert Delatola, Dr. Tyson Graber, and Professor Alex McKenzie for your contributions today and enlightening me and our audience about the fascinating analysis that we can derive from our bodily waste. Thank you again for all of the hard work and pioneering research that you are doing to keep us safe from this pandemic and the pandemics to come. Thank you. Uh, thanks Thank you. very much. It's a lot of fun. I'd like to say au revoir to you all for now. Thank you for listening to our very first season of COVID-19 The Answers. I hope you've all enjoyed gathering important evidence-based information about the COVID-19 pandemic from a wide respected and highly knowledgeable group of scientists and medical professionals over the past three months and learned how you can live safely with the coronavirus. It's time for you all now to go out into the world and demand change. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.